Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, whether you have a printed copy, as I highly prefer that you bring with you, or you have an app on your device, I want you to find the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, and when you find the book of 1 Corinthians, if you'd be so kind as to turn with me to chapter 7, and when you find the 7th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians, I'd like to draw your attention and by God's grace preach from verse 8 down through verse 16 this morning. For those of you who are guests, that's what we do. We preach through the books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we've walked through the book of 1 Corinthians for several months now. And last Sunday, I began a new series as we opened up chapter 7, simply entitled, Managing Marriage. Now, I made a joke last week about the reality that when we think about marriage, we think about love and romance and sentimental feelings of connection. We think about what it produces, you and me, forever feelings. But we often don't think about the word manage. In fact, we don't want someone to say, well, how's your marriage? Well, I'm managing. That's not what we'd like. But when you look at the English definition of the word manage, it has, as so often is the case in the English language, several variations of its meaning. And one of those is to treat with care. We treat that with care when we manage something. The transitive verb form of manage is to achieve one's purpose. She managed to make the game-winning shot. He managed to turn that business around. She managed to raise three children on her own who all grew up to be successful. And in those uses of the word manage, we're praising the person for what they've done. And what we've said is, in business, anything that's valuable must be managed. If you care about it, you have to count it. This is how you make money in business. It's how you care for people in relationships. You have to manage things. To mismanage or to neglect is an absolute surefire way for unsuccess and failure. So we pay attention to that which we value. Therein lies the if-then statement. If marriage is valuable, then we ought to manage it. There are many passages in the Bible that speak to the love a man and woman should have. There are many passages that outline the covenant and the connection to the gospel and the creative purpose of marriage. But there are also passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where Paul is not proactively speaking to marriage. He's reacting to some of the struggles that the church at Corinth was experiencing. It is very hard for me to fully describe what it must have been like for Paul to deal with everything that he was told taking place in Corinth. In fact, one of the key terms we find from chapter 7 through the end of the book is this phrase, now concerning. In fact, it occurs over and over and over there. Now concerning in verse 1 of chapter 7, verse 25, the first verse of chapter 8, chapter 12, verse 1, chapter 16, verse 1, and again in verse 12 of the 16th chapter, Paul is saying, now concerning, now concerning things like sex and marriage and celibacy and meat offered to idols and worship and spiritual gifts and the way in which you collect the offering and even what to do with particular leaders like Apollos. So the rest of the book, after you get through chapter 6, is really Paul saying, hey, there's some stuff we need to manage. There's some stuff taking place. There's some things that have happened. And here is God's will on the matter. Now, when we think about managing marriage, we often think about the sentimental preoccupation even our world has with forever love. You and me forever. 
And yet, even though the world does seem to still be infatuated with the idea that a man and a woman can fall in love and love one another forever, we find it happening less and less and less. I thought about that just a few weeks ago when the queen died. I like I like my favorite uh, meme in all that was one old boy said, "I stopped worrying about the monarchy in 1776." But the uh, when the queen died, what you may not have known if you don't study British history or English history really, is this, that she became queen at a very young age because her uncle abdicated the throne in order to marry a divorced woman, which was not allowed by the Church of England then. The standards were much different now. So she became queen because a man chose to marry a woman who had obviously been married. And when we think about that, and then we look three generations forward at all of the marriages and the celebration of weddings, some of you remember, you're uh, old enough to remember watching the worldwide televised event of, of Prince Charles and Princess Diana's wedding there in the early 80s, and how from that point forward, there has been nothing short of chaos in many of the marriages in and around the throne. And I'm not picking on them. They're but a cross-section and a representation of what we find in our world today. Even if you are not into that at all, if you can't wait to go home this afternoon and enjoy a delicious lunch and sit down and watch football, watching sports now means that we have to cover Tom Brady's strained relationship and potential divorce with his supermodel wife, Giselle, over the issue of him refusing to retire. I just don't know that Laurel would be upset if I went back for a few more million. I, I don't know that, but I don't know, I don't know that. But, but uh, when, we, when we think about these high-profile relationships, it reminds us of something. Our society that is still in love with the thought of forever love is very much like what we find in many people's lives within the church. That forever love ended up not being forever. What happens when marriages deal with division? When there's a divide? There are lots of ways people can face division in their marriages. Whether you're married today, you're single and desire to be married, perhaps you're healing from a recent divorce, or you've been divorced in your past, nobody in the room is immune from recognizing that either yourself or someone you love has dealt with division in a marriage of your past, perhaps in your current marriage, or in a marriage someone else is in whom you love deeply and dearly. Perhaps they're a friend of yours, a loved one, a family member, and their marriage is divided right now. How do you deal with that? Well, there are three specific situations that come to Paul's attention in verses 8 through verse 16. All three of them really represent special and unique people who are dealing with situations that were not unique to Corinth, to Corinth, and certainly they are generally experienced today by people in the church. There really are three ways marriages are divided. And I want to show you that by reading this passage. Look with me beginning in verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. 
for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Verse 10, to the married. So Paul is taking his attention off those who were married. Now to the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. That's Paul's way of saying, I'm about to quote Jesus here. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. And then there's one final issue in verse 12. To the rest. So he's dealt with those who are in struggling marriages. He's dealt with those who have previous marriages. He says, to the rest, I, not the Lord. Now, Paul's not saying this is not the inerrant word of God. He's just saying, I'm not quoting Jesus directly here, but I'm speaking with his authority. I, not the Lord. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your husband? Why? Very quickly this morning, three divisions that marriages encounter. How do you deal in a marriage with the division of death? What happens when a man and woman are divided by death? This, of course, is not a situation where sin is involved. In fact, I have the privilege of being over and administering and facilitating and orchestrating marriages. I don't do as many ceremonies as I once did. There are about 19 pastors who serve with me here at Church at the Mill, and they do a great job of marrying most of the folks in our church who request and go through our premarital counseling and are willing to do the things that we ask for them to prepare for marriage. But when I do a marriage, as any pastor who does a marriage, as any officiant, Typically, you will read a traditional marriage or wedding vow, and when you do, at some point, it will say, till death do us part. And so we go into marriage knowing there are two biblically permissive ways out. One is to the grave, or the other is to the resurrection. If the Lord returns, or I'm returned to the Lord, my marriage comes to an end. Not my love, for my spouse. People have often asked me, they struggle with that, and there's a whole theology of heaven we don't have time to unpack this morning, but they've said, well, why can't we be married in heaven? But then the other half of the church says, I sure am glad we ain't going to be married in heaven. Uh, <laughs> but, but the reality is, heaven's love is so perfected that our affections will be so exponentially greater and deeper for one another than we have here. Marriage will be but a thing of the old and the new will involve all of us being united in one around Christ. But the Bible also teaches that you will be known as you were known. And so there is no doubt in my mind that when I am in heaven and I will be in heaven, not because of my performance or position, but because of my salvation, because of the blood of Jesus, when I am in heaven and my wife now is in heaven, we will certainly share the special joy of having shared a life together here on earth. But on our way to heaven, one may precede the other, and when that happens, the one who is left is designed and designated as a widow 
or widower. Now, this is a first-generation group of Christians, and they are asking the question, okay, we know marriage is important, but what do we do if our marriage ends because our spouse dies? In fact, the word in the original language for widower was very rare in the Greek. And so, most scholars believe, and I think you can make a strong argument, that verse 8 is a reference to widowers, men who have lost their spouse in death, or widows, as it says, women, of course, who have lost their spouse in death. And this is why he says, to the unmarried. And that term actually means those, doesn't mean those never married. He's saying those who were married and have been made unmarried, and based on the context of the sentence, I think you can make a strong argument. He's referencing men whose wife has been lost to death. To the unmarried, and another reason for that is the very next phrase, to the unmarried and the widows. So to men who are unmarried now because your wife has died, and to women who are unmarried now because your husband has died. You are free from the bond, free from the covenant. What is Paul's word? Look what he says. I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now, I described this last week, and I talked to you about this. Paul here is not making a demand that is black and white. You must remain single. He is saying it is good. It can be holy and honorable to God for you to continue to remain in the state that your spouse's death has created, for you to remain single. Now, I don't have time this morning to go unpack what we unpacked last week. If you'd like to catch up, they're all available on every platform. You can podcast, watch them online. But there is freedom in singleness before the Lord. And for those of you who are single in the room, I spent some time last week talking about the fact that there's no such thing as a second-class Christian because you are not married, previously married, unmarried, widowed, or widower, that you can serve the Lord and that there are some advantages to not being burdened with the covenant and the commitment to care for a spouse. This doesn't mean the Bible does not hold a high view of marriage. It is actually celebrated, thus the reason God is giving so much attention to it in chapter 7. But there should not be this rush to run back into another relationship. You're not defined by your marital status. And as is often the case when someone loses a spouse in death, there is great pain and there is great sorrow. And one of the risks is that the balm of a new relationship too soon can be seen as healing when it can at times be just the opposite. I would say to the widows and the widowers in our church, the best way to apply this passage and the principle of this passage is that when you lose your spouse in death, hurt, mourn, feel sorrow, rejoice over their life, celebrate their legacy, the parts of their life that made you better, made you stronger, made you more faithful, emulate those into your life, minister to your children if they are involved, let the church minister to you and reach a place of wholeness in your singleness. This is what Paul is saying. And then, as the Holy Spirit leads... If God makes it obvious to you that a person is for you and that you are for them, you can enjoy the gift and the freedom and the joy of remarriage. And when you are young, as we dealt with last week, much more graphically than we'll deal with this week, parents, don't be alarmed. When you are young, 
obviously your desires physically for intimacy are at a higher level, and that comes into play, which is why, what does he say in verse 8? To the unmarried and to the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single. But if they cannot exercise self-control, if you find yourself deeply desiring the connection and the intimacy of another person, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. One of the things that we talked about last week was that Paul is saying God's gift to the world and God's answer to sexual desire is marriage. It is a wonderful, biblical, fruitful, safe, affirming place to express yourself intimately, romantically, and sexually. When Paul is dealing with young Timothy, a young pastor, this must have come up in his church because in the book of 1 Timothy, he says, so I would have younger widows marry. And of course, ladies, this principle can apply to young men or young women, even though he addresses young widows here. Bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So that's a perfect example of how Paul is being balanced in this. He's not saying it's a sin to get married after you become a widow or a widower. Certainly it is not. But he's also saying it's also not holy to run after another holy matrimony until you are wholly ready to do so. And so make sure you spend time in your healing. And the Lord, of course, will show you his will for your life. Now, that's honestly the easiest one to preach. It just makes sense. What do you do when you deal with the divide of divorce? Almost every time I hear a preacher deal with divorce, one of the things they get up and say is the divorce rates in the church are just as high as they are in the world. Actually, uh, Barna and several other researchers proved years ago that that's actually not true. There's a slightly lower rate of divorce among those who are active in church, which honestly should be obvious. In other words, if you surround yourself with faithful people and there are faithful witnesses around you and faithful preaching and faithful teaching and faithful fellowship and faithful cooperation and love for one another and faithful examples to look at, you would hope that the presence of the gospel would drive down the prevalence of divorce. And it does. It does. Absolutely. And whenever you deal with the subject of divorce, it's important for the church to get the theology right. There are at least two extremes we have to avoid. One extreme is creating an environment where any person who has been divorced or may be walking through a divorce feel as though they are damaged goods that God can never use. That's just not biblical. But the other extreme in the name of grace is to stop preaching against divorce. That's not biblical either. I stand in a congregation of hundreds of married couples. God's word to you is clear. Divorce in the Lord is not an option. You have to burn those bridges. That's a word you eliminate from your vocabulary. And as I'm about to show you in the scripture, there are rare events and occasions where Christians have no other option, but it should be even further away than what we would quantify as a last resort, which is why once Paul deals with those who've dealt with the divide of death, he then deals with those who are considering the being divided by divorce. Look what he says beginning in chapter 7 around verse 10. To the married, I give this charge. Now, now, 
why does he say, not I, but the Lord? Now, this is important. So I hold in my hand a copy of God's Word. It is a copy. I, we don't have the original version here. If we did, that'd be pretty cool. But this is a copy of God's Word. You have a copy of God's Word. If you don't, you have a 1,000 copies available for you at the touch of uh, your fingers on the screen of your device. So, so this is a copy of God's Word. And so we have copies of copies of copies of God's Word. But we believe passionately that this is the Word of God. It is the foundational belief of our church. Today at 2.30, after I swallow lunch backstage, I'll be teaching a new member class. And one of the things I'll say in the new member class is that we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. It's one of the reasons why guests, within 30 seconds of ever hearing a sermon at Church at the Mill, you're going to hear a passage. You're going to be asked to turn to the passage. We're going to read the passage. We're going to explain the passage. We're going to apply the passage because the power and the authority in preaching is not the pulpit, the position, the personality, or the pastor. The power and the authority in preaching is in the Word of God. It's okay if you disagree with me. I have a lot of opinions, and I'm certainly capable of being wrong, as are you. It's not okay to be submissive to the will of God, so the role of the pastor is to not to give you his opinion, but to give you the Word of God in as clear a way as he can explain it. And so when we come to this passage, what does it mean for Paul to say, not I but the Lord? Is it like Paul needs extra emphasis? Actually, that's not what it means. It means that he's about to directly quote Jesus in the principle he's teaching. And I do think that matters. He says, verse 10, to the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. Now, where does he get that from? Well, several places, but Mark chapter 10 is the one that comes to my mind. The Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. In fact, the Bible says, and the Pharisees came up in order to test him and ask him. So the Pharisees picked the issue of divorce because, as it is in our day, there were faithful Jews who were going through divorces just as there are faithful Christians who've experienced divorce in their life. So they say, ha, we'll trap him here. So what do they say? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So what does Jesus do? Jesus almost always answered the Pharisees with the Word of God. Why? There's irony here because they're supposed to be the experts in the Word of God. So he says, what did Moses command you? Now, when he says command Moses, he's talking about the Old Testament law. Well, they quickly say, oh, oh, good. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, again, no time this morning to go all the way back to the background of that, but Jesus goes back a little bit. In the very next passage, this is what he says. And Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart. In other words, this was not originally God's per perfect will. This is a part of his permissive will. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation. Now, Paul is quoting Jesus, and Jesus is quoting Genesis. God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. You could take that one sentence and destroy every argument we see today in our culture. God made them how? Male and female. Only two options. I'm a binary guy because I have a binary Bible and a binary God. God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. The best place to raise a man is with his father and his mother. It's not the only place, but the best place. And then he should hold fast to his wife, thus the creation of a new family. The most important institution of any society is the family, and the building block for the family is a marriage between one man 
and one woman. Not an open marriage, not a homosexual marriage, and not a relaxed, adulterous situation where people are living together, a man and a woman in a covenant relationship with one another, committing only to one another and therefore holding fast. So Jesus is affirming what God taught. Now, the passage goes on and says, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, you and I both know, and I am so thankful that when I married Laurel, she didn't get my body. I like the way hers looks. I know she didn't marry me for mine, so I'm not worried about that. I told her I don't have a good-looking physique. I don't have any money. I'm not incredibly intelligent, and I'm going into ministry, but I'm like a good dog. I'm loyal. I'm just going to be here. I'm just going to be here. And so that was enough early in her life. That and some manipulation and emotionalism I played, and finally she, I got her to the altar. <laughs> what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So, so again, this is not a suggestion. God says to divorce is not my will. Now, the disciples say in the house, they ask again about this matter. Because like you and me, they saw divorce all the time. And what did Jesus say? Well, if you look at the next slide, you'll see what he talked about. And he said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. So, so, so whereas the world would say adultery is when a man steps away from his marriage temporarily to be with another woman, Jesus would say you can't step away with man's power what has been put together with God's power. The binding of the vow continues and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, the interesting thing about this is that one of the reasons the evangelical church seems to not have a lot of weight at the table when we argue for marriage in the world around us is because all they do is look at our marriage track record. You know, it's, it's one thing to take a hard stance to get homosexual marriage or open marriage or the attack on gender. But all the world has to do is say, well, you guys aren't doing too well with the version of marriage you preach. There's an integrity issue there. And when we face that tension, often there's this desire to say, well, yeah, but we're people of grace and forgiveness. I mean, some of the most meaningful leaders in our church, some of the most godly men and women I've ever met, some of the people who have encouraged me and taught me so much have a failed marriage in their past. We know that Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. We know that there is healing and wholeness that can come through Christ. We know there's no discussion around the subject of divorce that disqualifies you from serving Jesus the rest of your life and loving him. And when we think about the idea of divorce, it's good for the church to be re-reminded. I could write a whole series of sermons of the conversations that happen when I ride in my truck with Rhett. I'm thinking about writing a book, Riding with Red. He's six, and the stuff he says. He and I went and made a quick grocery run yesterday for Mama, and we got just a few things, and I let him push the buggy. And, uh, and so when we got in the truck, I said, thank you for helping me, and we're driving out of the parking lot. He's buckling up, I'm buckling up, and, and he said, Dad, I, I had something come to my mind. I've never heard it before. Nobody's ever said it, but I just think I'm going to say it. Ooh. I said, okay. He said, now, I've never heard this before, but this is straight from me. Dad, a man's got to do what a man's got to do. <laughs> I said, what? He said, 
Dad, sometimes a man's got to do what a man's got to do. I said, Rhett, man, that's good. I said, you don't think anybody else has ever said that? He said, I've never heard it before. <laughs> then he paused, and then later, maybe, maybe the spirit, I don't know. He ain't saved yet, so I don't know. But he, maybe, 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 maybe the spirit, then he said, well, somebody might have said it at some point, but I thought of it for the first time new in my mind. A man's got to do what a man's got to do. <laughs> the comedy in that is that that's not original. I doubt that he has gone his whole life without hearing it. And if he did make it up in his mind, he's going to learn very quickly it was not a unique idea. Sometimes the church has to go back and be held up in front of what has always been the case because we forget. With as much grace and love as I can say to you as your shepherd, it is never God's will for Christians to divorce. It's never his will. It's not a part of his plan for your life. And, and, and to be honest with you, I don't think I'm the one that is burdened about divorce the most in our church. All you gotta do is talk to the people who are living through one or who have survived one. And if they're serious about following Jesus, they'll tell you they never wanna go down that road again. We were not designed to give ourselves spiritually, emotionally, physically, financially, sexually to a person before God and then have that undone. It's like trying to take a gallon of lemonade and turn it back into a lemon. You cannot do, undo what God has done, which is why the Bible says, let not man put asunder, in the old King James, let not man separate what God has done. So when Paul gets to this, he, he then says it pretty quickly. Look at your passage beginning in verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. The reason, ladies, he uses the word separate here is that there's a pretty good argument that in the Corinthian setting, she would not have had the legal power to divorce, but she would have had the physical ability to leave the house. And so she could separate, which is equally sinful in when you abandon someone, whether or not you can afford a lawyer, in God's eyes, you are leaving the marriage. She cannot separate. And from, from her husband, if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So, so when we think about this, we then wonder, well, pastor, what about situations where adultery has occurred? Well, Jesus clarified that too in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 5. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is called the adultery clause in the Bible. In other words, Jesus is saying that if someone leaves the marriage physically and leaves it sexually and will not repent, this does not mean that adultery is a death knell to every marriage. In fact, the first thing that should be said to someone who is the recipient of having been uh, the victim of adultery is before you rush to lawyer up, before you rush to determine it's over, is there a desire of reconciliation in the part of the one who has violated the marriage covenant? Because if there is true repentance and a desire of reconciliation, you do not have biblical grounds for divorce. I've walked with many people 
whose marriage has survived and is now thriving after adultery has occurred. But I also know individuals who have attempted to reconcile, and yet the adultery was continuous, and there was a pattern of no repentance and no remorse, and ultimately they're left with no other option. And so we recognize that even in the grace of God's Word, there are situations that are beyond our control. And so when we think about Paul's first word, I would say it's to married people in the room or online whose lives are struggling and you're considering divorce, Paul says you got two options, remain or reconcile if you have lived. A Christian man or a Christian woman does not leave their marriage. And until you have exhausted every way to see reconciliation, and the body of Christ and godly men and women around you have bore witness. You've done everything you can do, and yet they continue to flee. They continue to run. They continue to commit adultery. There's continual abuse until everyone bears witness, and you bear witness, and the Spirit of God bear witness in you. You don't bring divorce into the equation. And then when you do find your place where you're left with no other option. You want to be in such a way that you could stand before the Lord and say, I did not want this, and I did everything in my power to avoid this. And in those rare occasions, I find there's freedom and healing after divorce. Now, when we think about such a firm, clear word that Paul gives us, it's important for people not to feel isolated. Because some of you may have listened to me over the last four or five minutes and determined in your mind, you know what? I, I have a divorce in my past that wasn't God's will. What am I supposed to do? I got great news for you. You're supposed to do the same thing you do with anything in your life that's not God's will. You bring it to him. You confess it. Lord, this broken relationship, this previous marriage, my separation from my spouse was not according to your will. Based on what I learned this morning from Pastor what I've been reminded of in his word, and I confess that to you. I can't go undo that, but to the degree that I can bring any reconciliation, to the degree that I can share any remorse, I will. And Lord, would you forgive me of that and allow me to walk in the newness of life that you've promised me in Christ? This is why no one has to be defined by a previous divorce. This is why no one has to be enslaved by something in their past. It's also why the church can't allow people to fight this fight together. What should the church do? This is a burden we all bear together. It's not just about me maintaining or protecting my marriage. It's about us loving and rooting for one another. It's why we encourage couples to be in small group and to have accountability and encouragement. R really quickly, we as a church should do four very important steps in our battle for marriage. Number one, we should embrace and nurture and celebrate God's original design for gender identity. Encouraging our girls and our boys to grow up to be men and women as God defines it sets them up if God blesses them in marriage. Secondly, we should not only do that, we should encourage our young people to marry seriously, prayerfully, and faithfully. We know there's a generation more in love with the wedding picture posts than they are marriage. That event that's overpriced and overpaid for will last about 30 minutes. Then you go into a reception hall that'll last a little bit longer where you'll do the electric slide poorly. <laughs> then it's over. 
It's over. And yet, we find young couples spending thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours for that 45-minute experience and no time preparing their heart for the rest of their life. And so, I just encourage you as your young people date and as they enter into romantic relationships to help them recognize you don't have to marry every person you go out with. But before you spend any time with a person one-on-one where you could develop feelings, you should be able to say, God, if it's your will, this is the kind of young woman I would marry. This is the kind of young man I would marry. And when we think about that, then what should we do? We should surround couples and fight for them and pray for them and encourage them in marriage. And finally, we should fight against divorce and run to people who are struggling with that. And if we can, offer our lives and our guidance and our encouragement to say to them, you do not have to face this alone. And that's God's word about divorce. There's one more. What about the divide of devotion? What about those of you who say, I'm not desiring divorce, but I'm married to a man who is not serious about following the Lord Jesus. I'm married to a woman who is not as serious about her faith as I am. I would never say this to her. I'm not being critical of her. I don't want to make fun of her. I'm not being judgmental, but here's the truth, Pastor. I'm committed to my faith and the gospel, and my spouse is not. Now, he will say he is. She will say he is. Spartanburg County is full of people who will tell you they love Jesus, but the life they live bears otherwise. What do I do in that situation? Friend, I want you to know you are not alone. In fact, you're not even alone in this room. There are married people in this room who have an empty seat beside them that they have asked God to fill for years with a person they share a life with, and I'm so proud of their faithfulness. What does God's Word say? Well, look at verse 12 as we close. He says, To the rest I say, I am not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any man has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her children. Some people get confused about that. Let me tell you what that means and what it doesn't mean. Paul's not arguing it makes them saved or he would not have called them an unbeliever. He's talking about the sanctification of the home. Remember that in Corinth, they're wrestling with what's clean and what's unclean, what's holy before the Lord and what's unholy. So can you imagine being a first-generation Christian? You've chosen to follow Jesus. Your husband is still worshiping at the temple of Aphrodite, which was in Corinth, perhaps participating in prostitutional worship. Maybe he's sacrificing meat to idols there, the Greek, the false Greco-Roman gods of the day. And you begin to wonder, okay, holiness and, and sanctification, am I defiling my God by sleeping with my husband? Am I defiling my God by living in a home with this man who does not love the Lord Jesus? You could see a young believer convincing themselves, well, you know what? If I'm all in for Jesus, then I should should just leave this man. And Paul says, wait, you can keep your faith and your vow. You can keep your faith and your vow. And he says, your presence brings the presence of God into the home. You create an environment of holiness where there is no holiness. When a believer stays, sanctification is present. In fact, who could Paul have chosen better to be his protege than young Timothy? But you know, Timothy didn't have a believing father, yet Timothy's mother stayed 
faithful. The Bible says in 1st 2nd Timothy 1 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Ladies, who's missing from this? Men. He had no godly men in his home, but because his grandmother and his mother were faithful, God sanctified that home and saved that boy. So sanctification is present, and finally, salvation is possible. If you gave me the choice of a man or a woman without Christ living with another lost person or living with a believer, I'll take choice B every time. Because not only will they hear from the Christians in their community, I hope, they'll see the gospel in their spouse's life, which is exactly why he says in the last part of the passage, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. In other words, you can't stop somebody from leaving you over the faith which is why when people put me in a corner and they say, are there any biblical grounds for divorce? Simply put, as a communicator, I say this. Yes, there are biblical grounds for divorce when there is adultery. And I mean repeated, unrepentant adultery. And there's biblical grounds for divorce when there's abandonment, when somebody just leaves. You can't reconcile somebody to the back of their head. When they just leave, thereby bearing witness they're not a follower of Jesus because Christian men who love the Lord Jesus don't leave. Christian women who love the Lord Jesus don't leave unless repeated adultery or abandonment has taken place. And in abandonment, I always say, simply put, there are two parts. Abandonment, A, would be someone's absence. They just left. But a second part, especially to ladies, I would say, is that if you're in an abusive situation, your husband is abusing you physically or sexually, your life or your children's lives are in danger, that is abandonment. While he may be physical present, present, physically present, he's stomping all over the vow, and the God of heaven would not allow you to stay in a situation where you are being threatened or damaged. It doesn't mean you run for divorce, but you get yourself to a safe place and a place of healing and wholeness. Paul understood that. He says, listen, sometimes your love for the Lord and your commitment to him is going to create an environment where they leave. And if they leave, they leave. Don't encourage it, but you can't stop them. You're not enslaved. But then he closes with this word of hope. He says in verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? He's asking a rhetorical question. You don't know what God is doing. Peter said this to young women in the book of 1 Peter. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husband so that even if some do not obey the word, in other words, they're lost, they're not saved, they may be won without word by the conduct of their wives when they see the respectful and pure conduct. So Peter's challenging young women, and by default also young men, live out your faith and stay faithful. So when you deal with the divide of death, remain in your state, let the Lord guide you to remarriage if it's his will. When you deal with contemplating divorce, remember that is not God's will. Do everything in your power to remain faithful to your vow, regardless of the behavior of your spouse, until all options have been exhausted. And finally, when you deal with a divide spiritually, where they want to love you, they want to live with you, they want to stay with you, but they don't love the Lord Jesus, you stay. You keep your faith and your vow. Last Sunday afternoon, Gene Pace, our senior adult pastor, conducted a 
wedding vowel renewal for Fred and Francis Garrett. This is a picture. This month, they're celebrating 60 years of marriage. Gene said he could tell they were in love by the way they kissed one another at the end of the ceremony. They're both active members of our church, but for years, Fred admits that she attended without him. She brought the children to church week in and week out. Later in his life, he became more dedicated to his faith. They've been a part of our church for over 10 years. They're here every week. Fred has stage four cancer. He's done everything that he can do, and at this point, he's not doing any more other than living his life. And right now, he has a measure of health, but the doctors have said that could change. And so they decided to go ahead and do this renewal now so they could celebrate 60 years of marriage. That's what we're chasing. That's what we're after. Fred said in his testimony to Gene, God has been so kind and generous to me. In light of this terminal illness that I have, whatever he has in store for me, I trust him. This is the standard, not perfection. Neither one of these individuals would tell you they're perfect. You keep your vow. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word. I think about those who are struggling with their vow right now. I recognize this morning that there are many reasons marriages struggle. I confess to you that there's not a marriage that doesn't struggle. I don't have any experience in years of ministry of bumping into a couple that never struggled because of sin, because of our own lives, because of stress, because of health, financial challenges, the challenges of parenting, seasons of change, things that are a consequence of our decisions and some things that have nothing to do with anything we've done, yet they've been cast upon us. There are a thousand ways that marriages can struggle and they can hurt. We know the enemy loves to see marriages divided. But your word has not changed. Your love and your lordship is the way we have a love for a lifetime. It's not a big diamond. It's not sentimental feelings. It's not a love song or a precious card. It's not a beautiful wedding ceremony, a gorgeous home, a bank account filled with money, glamorous vacations, beautiful, talented children in a nice neighborhood. It's none of those things. It's your lordship in our life that allows us to live the gospel out in the way we love our spouse. Lord, that same grace is sufficient for the one in this room who has been through the pain of divorce. You love them. You have a plan for their life. You can heal. But for the couples in this room right now committed to one another, I pray an extra measure of passion to run from division and run to the Lordship of Jesus. And for those who are considering marriage, this joyous gift, I pray they would do so seriously and humbly. And those who have lost a spouse to death, I pray they would remember you are a husband to the husbandless. You are a wife to the wifeless. You comfort us and you heal us for whatever your will may be. And Lord, here's why. 
you're enough. You're enough. You're enough for the deepest wounds, the hardest bitterness, the most sour feelings of anxiousness. You're enough. Lord, help us to run to you. I'm going to say amen, and when I do, we're going to stand and we're going to sing that in song. And as we do, some of you need to grab that wife by the hand and bring her to this altar and pray. Others of you may want to step into our prayer room in the concourse and say, my husband and I need to talk to someone. We want to help marriages. If you have a wound in your heart from a previous marriage, from a failed marriage, we would love to minister to you. Whether you come to this altar or you go to our prayer room, I promise you, you'll seek the Lord, he will be found. Father, you move now as only you can in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing that. Already loved, Declare it, church. Already of our God is enough. If you can't get enough of his word, there's a brand new Bible reading plan. It's at each connect corner on the left and right of the concourse. It's all about your relationship with him. Grab it and read God's word with us this month and next month. God bless you. You are dismissed. Afraid.